have your Bibles tonight, you'd like to turn to the sixth chapter of Genesis, picking back up where we left off two weeks ago, Genesis chapter six. We're going to look at the flood in four different parts over the next few weeks, which will take us all the way up to the end of chapter nine. First, because uh, I think the text gives us four clear sections. We could take four clear sections from the account of the flood, but also because I think that will help us take in God's relentless commitment to his saving purposes in the world that he he brings about through judgment. Something dies every time God saves. The flood is the second but much clearer demonstration in scripture of how God saves sinners. The cross of Jesus Christ, which will be the ultimate um, picture of redemption, um, is prefigured in much clearer terms even than it was in Genesis 3, now in Genesis 6 in the biblical account of the flood and following. Redemption, redemption will get progressively clearer as scripture advances. And standing behind the action on the page, driving this narrative as its creator and director is a God who is irrevocably committed to keeping his promises. In Genesis 6 tonight, God uses language here that we haven't seen yet. The the idea has been here, or or the the substance of what we're talking about has been there, but uh, the language here we haven't seen yet to describe the means through which he will bring salvation. Tonight in Genesis 6, God uses the language of covenant. Covenant establishes a pattern we will be able to trace all the way through scripture from Adam to Jesus to the new creation. God makes covenants to accomplish the ultimate purpose of building his kingdom on the earth. Through covenants, God will show himself as king and savior of the world. Through covenants, we find that God is irrevocably committed to saving his people. So this pattern that we find began at creation, the creation of man is revealed at the flood and continues throughout the word of God until it culminates in Jesus Christ. So let's pray one more time before we walk through the word together and then we'll look at the text. Father, I ask tonight that you would help each one of us to see clearly the meaning of this text. Father, what you wanted to proclaim to us when you inspired these words through your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help me speak clearly tonight. Father, I pray that you would help me speak in such a way that I not um, distract from the text at all. Father, I pray that we would all be able to understand and to hear and to believe. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so let's pick up in verses. We'll start with 9 and 10 in chapter 6, Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Remember, Noah found favor. Noah found grace. God gave him grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. We've seen that before. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now that God has given grace to Noah, now that that's happened, he becomes a righteous man, blameless in his generation. It's not that Noah was perfect or sinless, but that he was faithful in believing God's word to him, which is the exact opposite of what the rest of the world did. The text uses the same language of Noah that it did of Enoch in 524. Noah walked with God, Genesis reveals the pattern of covenant. Yes, we'll get into that tonight. It also reveals the pattern of the people of God in this world. 
rather than trying to make this earth into their home, they walk with God. Those are two different things. That's the real dividing line between the righteous and the faithless is walking with God versus trying to make a home in this world. Rather than trying to make this earth into their home, the children of God walk with him. They travel, they sojourn, they don't make a home here, right? Instead, they live by faith. That's the opposite of making a home here. Looking for, desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. Hebrews eleven seven describes Noah as one who became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith when in reverent fear of God concerning events that were yet unseen, he constructed an ark. When the earth and the heavens opened and the rain fell on the earth, Noah didn't weep for the loss of the world because Noah longed for a home with God. This is how the New Testament describes his righteousness. He was a descendant of Seth and Enoch. He's the son of Lamech who desired rest from his work and the painful toil of his hands. And he had three sons. It starts that new section, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We know from the first eight verses of chapter six that God has decided to blot out man completely and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens from the earth. God will bring about a decisive and new direction in creation through an act of judgment. So the text goes on to speak of what the earth was like in the time of Noah and his sons and why he will act, why God is going to do what he's decreed he's going to do. Look at 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So Noah's faith has made him pure in a world of corruption. Three times you see that word corrupt to describe the earth and all the flesh in it. The earth is also described as filled with violence. And the perversion of all flesh is described by saying, again, they had corrupted their way. Mankind's corruption is so extensive, it's literally affected every way of human life throughout all humanity. That was Noah's generation. Those were his days. That's what people were like when he lived. That's what he saw and his wife saw and his sons saw. That brings us to verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God will destroy mankind because they've corrupted the world with violence, right? That's his response. The conflict that resulted from the curse has now exploded into all-out violence between one another, we find that that is something God will not perpetually allow. We discover that here. And now the earth itself, the one that was in the beginning, will be completely destroyed also. Now let me read 14 through 22. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. 
And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So the means by which God will carry out this destruction of the earth is through a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. The result is that everything that is on the earth will die. But God will establish his covenant with Noah by saving his life and that of his wife and sons and their wives, as well as a representative group from the animals, two of every kind of animal, male and female, through Noah's building of an ark. This is a seaworthy vessel, unlike the one in the Babylonian account of the flood. It's a perfect cube of 120 cubits in dimension, which of course would sink the minute you put it in the water. The ark was a large floating barge that was about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high by our measurements, right? It was sealed with pitch, watertight inside and out. Then pitch was a, a dark colored, thick kind of salty mixture of hydrocarbons used for waterproofing sailing vessels. This may have been the first ship ever built. You know, it, it's, it's hard to say. We don't know exactly where Noah was located, but you can imagine how building this vessel would have stood out to say the least. And he does what God commands because he believed God's word, right? That, that's it. Noah built the ark and followed all of God's instructions. If God says he is, so here's how Noah thinks, right? If God says he's going to flood the world and tells you that you should build something that makes you float, and in your heart you desire to draw near to God, which is what faith is, then you build the boat, right? That's what Noah did. Genesis doesn't tell us how precisely Noah interacted with those around him. Second Peter 2, 5, however, reveals that Noah was a herald of righteousness in his day because he built the ark. Hebrews tells us what kind of righteousness he was a herald of. The righteousness that comes by faith. What was Noah's message then? Believe the Lord for salvation. He is the only one who can save you. Have faith in him was Noah's message. That was a countercultural message. So Noah wasn't... The, the, the message he proclaimed was one of gospel salvation. Believe the Lord and be saved. That was the message. He was a herald of the righteousness that comes by faith. Right? You, you don't obtain that righteousness by works. So Noah wasn't saying it. It's not that back in Genesis, the days of Genesis 6, you were saved by works. You've only ever been saved by faith, no matter what era you lived in, right? He was the herald of that righteousness. Noah wasn't in people's faces. Noah was proclaiming the salvation of God by his faith in God to build the ark. What are you doing? I believe God. What did he say? He said he's going to flood the world. He told me to build this, so I'm building it. I believe him. In the same pattern of judgment, flee to God and find refuge by having faith in him or be destroyed. Although, again, it is an interesting thing. God has clearly said you are the only one that's going to survive. You, your sons, their wives, right, and your wife, that's it. So when we think about Noah proclaiming righteousness, it, it, what was he doing? Right, Because nobody else is getting in. It's very interesting. 
The same pattern of judgment remains to this day, beloved. As Peter writes, he talks about Noah and goes into Second Peter 3. Just as the judgment of God fell suddenly and unexpectedly on Noah's generation, it will come in the same way when it's all for us. It, we, we must be ready for the great and terrible day of the Lord will come in the same way. It will come in the same way. Two things are very clear tonight in this text. One, God will judge evil. And he will put an end to it. And God will be merciful and save those who believe in him by faith. Genesis has revealed so far that when judgment is imminent, God's salvation is still present. Right? We've seen that pattern develop. Adam and Eve were given mercy and covered in animal skins by God. Even Cain had a sign of protection on him even though he had been cast out. And here... God gave grace to Noah to preserve his family when the floods finally came. What are we learning about God by the time we get into just Genesis 6? That God is committed to saving, but not only we're discovering because he is merciful, but also because he is committed to accomplishing his purpose for creation. That's why back in Genesis 3, when the curses come, a promise comes with them. That's why there is covenant. Look at the way God describes just precisely what it is that he will do when he preserves Noah from judgment. Why is God doing that? Look at verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God we see this now, makes a distinction between everything and everyone that is on the earth and the one who has been given his grace. You see that. But, he says, I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. The Hebrew here is important because through it we understand this is not the creation of a new or a different covenant. This is the reiteration of one that existed before. We just didn't know that before because this language wasn't used. We find out here that when God gave Adam the mandate as his image and likeness in the world to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over the earth, God was making a covenant with him. God's design to see his will for creation fulfilled was to make a covenant with Adam. Adam failed in meeting the terms of that covenant but a seed of the woman was promised in Genesis 3.15 that would crush the serpent's head. And it's this one, as we will see explained as we go throughout Scripture, who will finally and fully meet the terms of God's covenant and then distribute that perfect submission and obedience as a gift credited to the account of every individual that makes up this new humanity. That is the original design by God for creation. And that responsibility, again, the same one given to Adam, that responsibility is passing to Noah in Genesis 6. The Hebrew for establish my covenant with you helps us understand this. So I know grammar is not exciting. I know it's not fun. So forgive me for some grammar here. But when it matters, it matters. All right. When some, or while sometimes the components or the nature or the status of the parties involved in making a covenant may differ, in the language of the biblical writers, a covenant involved, quote, a commitment or a promise 
that was usually solemnized by an oath in which an agreement and level of relationship between two parties is established. Now, here's the thing. The normal expression for covenant initiation, so you're going to start a covenant, cut a covenant is usually the term. That language is lacking in Genesis 6.18. Nowhere in the flood account do we read of God cutting a covenant. The Hebrew is karat berit. It's not there. In other words, when the biblical authors want to express that a covenant is being initiated, a different word is used then the word they use if they want to convey that a covenant is being made to affirm a relationship that was previously established. The Hebrew construction karat berit refers to covenant initiation, right? That is not the Hebrew construction that's used in Genesis 6. The construction used in Genesis 6 is hakim berit. It's different. That means to verbally affirm the continued validity of a prior commitment. So, In Genesis 6 and Genesis 9, as we'll read when we get there, God is not initiating a covenant with Noah. God is affirming for Noah and his descendants a commitment that was initiated previously with Adam. That means a covenant was established earlier between God and humans at creation. When God says to Noah, Hakim Berit, right, I will establish my covenant with you, he is saying, God is saying, That his commitment to his creation, God's commitment, the care of God to preserve, provide for, rule over all that he has made, including the blessings and ordinances that he initiated through Adam and Eve and their family, are are now to be with Noah and his descendants. Right? Adam failed at this. God is reestablishing that with Noah. That will become even more clear. We'll see it even more clearly in the way the language God uses when Noah and his family come out of the ark in chapter 8, parallels almost precisely the ordinances that were originally given to Adam and his family. God means to establish his kingdom on the earth, beloved. This is his will. This is why he created mankind. To accomplish his design for creation then, he does it through a covenant. We find in Genesis 6 that this pattern was actually initiated with Adam. Then it comes to Noah, which, by the way, who, by the way, will also fail to keep it when we get there. So when the pattern of covenant reappears later with this man named Abraham, how God means to accomplish it as humans continuously show themselves unable to keep the terms is going to be revealed. God bringing the seed into the world that will crush the serpent's head and keep the covenant on behalf of all mankind is finally going to be accomplished by an act of God's grace, by divine intervention from his end on behalf of creation. The need for it to be all grace, why does it have to be all grace? That's the purpose of the Mosaic covenant. The person through which the covenant will be accomplished is identified in the Davidic covenant, the covenant with David. And then finally, that person is revealed in the ultimate covenant, the one that is superior and different and final, the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of God. That's the storyline of the Bible. Covenant holds the message of the Bible together. That's how you can trace the story. What are the covenants? What's happening? Where are we on this timeline? 
Covenant reveals how God means to accomplish his purpose in creation of establishing his dominion through his image over what he has made. And covenant reveals that God is relentlessly committed to the salvation of sinners. So if there's a covenant behind all of this, do you understand what that does for our hope, for our faith, for our confidence? It's not just our souls on the line. The name of Almighty God is on the line. A covenant has been made. Will both parties keep their end of the covenant? Can God accomplish his purpose for creating the world? Is he able to? Is he powerful enough to? Well, what about sin? What about the fall? What about man's increasing inability? What about the devil, the adversary? Can the one who creates by his word out of nothing finally accomplish what he intends to? God's glory is on the line. And beloved, it is in that fact that we are given the basis of our hope in Genesis 6. Don't think for one second that God is going to leave once and for all the reputation of his name in the hands of human beings, of sinners, right? The covenant will be kept because God will keep it. The Old Testament is the long, hard story of how no one from here is going to be able to keep the covenant. But the longer story of all Scripture reveals that God's plan all along, we found out actually back in Genesis 3.15, was to do it himself. Beloved, this is why we are saved. This is why God's purpose will be accomplished, which means this is why we do not need to fear for our salvation. The church is not just a ragtag group of individuals who decided they would believe in Jesus. Do we really think God is a cosmic gambler? That he would gamble all of that and risk all of it? Is that how the Bible describes our God? As a big risk taker? Who doesn't know the future, but hopes for the best, hopes it all goes his way. Is that the picture you would take from God, from the word of, of God, from the words of scripture? You and I know that's not the picture of our God. The church is the new humanity with Jesus as its head in whom the ultimate purpose of God for creation will ultimately be fulfilled. Do you know that's who we are? That that's what's going on in this body of saints, beloved. He's not going to lose you. Do you believe this? Do you believe he's not going to lose you? His cosmic reputation, for one thing, hinges on you having eternal life in spite of your rebellion. Therefore, he hasn't left grasping eternal life in our hands. Just rest in his arms. We're safe in his arms. You may think it's odd to talk about God's cosmic reputation, right? What, what an odd thing to say. Is, is God concerned about such things? Listen to what God is doing through the church, all right? The saved, the seed of Abraham, the sons of the new Adam. Listen to this. I know most of you probably know this text, but hear it in light of covenant, God's purpose. Hear these words in light of those things. Listen to Ephesians chapter 3. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read quickly. Verses 8 through 11. This is Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. This is Paul talking. He's talked about, what, what has he said? He's talked about God's 
uh, election from before the world was created. He talks about how uh, who we are, that, that we've been saved by grace apart from works. It's not of our faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Through Jesus Christ, he's reconciled Jew and Gentile. He's made one new body in place of the two. All this amazing fulfillment language of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And he says this in verse 8 of chapter 3. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, why is Paul raised up to proclaim Christ and God's grace to Gentiles? Why? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose. Right? The eternal purpose. This was his purpose from before the creation of the world. The eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, did you hear the words of God? Do you understand this? Did you hear how God's purpose for the church is tied all the way back to creation in verse 9. God's eternal purpose for creation is finally realized in the church, his new covenant people through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why God's method of accomplishing his purpose is covenant. By covenant, God is saying to creation, I will do this. Right? This, this is what the church is for. Whether we treat it this way or not. A lot of us think the church is for us to realize ourselves and, and actualize ourselves and find one place on earth where we can have our own way and do the things we want to do. And so it becomes our little baby, our little thing that we want to form and shape and mold into our image. And God says, do you know why you're there? So that my glory and my ability to keep my word is clear to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I planned on making that clear by redeeming you. And the way that he redeems us is by covenant. This was his eternal purpose that he has realized. Realized. Past tense. It's done. It is realized. In Christ Jesus our Lord. That's by covenant God is saying, I am going to accomplish my purpose. Right? God chooses to do that in relational terms. Relational terms. A covenant. Not even then the rampant and universal wickedness and corruption and violence of the entire world back then was going to keep that from happening. You see that. God's commitment to save and to rule are stronger than our commitment to reject his rule. Right? You, we'll see this time and time again throughout the book of Genesis that God commits himself to accomplishing his purpose. It cannot be undone. It cannot be overridden. It can't be rejected. It can't be. Beloved, and he is our God. This is our God. This is the one that calls himself Father for us. That's how we not only get saved, that's how we stay saved. Because God keeps his covenants. We're going to look at, like I said, that the, 
the flood in four pictures. We're going to cover all the details as we go throughout it. But tonight, understand, God isn't just picking someone willy-nilly and saying, hey, you know what, I'll make a covenant with you in Genesis 6. God is ensuring that his purpose for creation will be accomplished. He's not going to just let it, like, you know what, they rejected me. Think think about, if we can even talk to this, think about what God is, is showing that he's thinking here. All of you are corrupt and violent. There are no exceptions. I'm going to give my grace to this man. So rather than saying, you know what, forget it. God says, no, I'm, I'm going to reestablish what I said I was going to do in the very beginning. Right? There, there, God does not, his, his word of decree, his sovereign word of decree, it gets done. And, and all the talk of our salvation is talk like that. Right? It's covenant language. It's wrapped in God's covenant, redeeming love and sovereign power. That's what a covenant is. It, 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 I stood across from my wife, right, when we were in, in our marriage ceremony. You, you make promises to each other. You're making a covenant with somebody. And you're making a promise. And you aren't thinking on that day when you say for better or worse, you're supposed to mean it. Right? How many of us remember the covenant that we made, like we, we made a covenant. Here, here's what the danger, no matter how much love there is in that moment, right? At any given moment, one of those two parties can say, you know what? I'm going to renege on my promise. I'm, I'm done. I'm out. And I'm not, what, what, not getting into the particulars. It's really saying, you understand, you, you made a promise. You made a covenant. And at some point, if one of these parties wants to, there is an avenue for us in the judicial system in our country to get out of that. To renege on a promise or to go back on it or to break a covenant. The most solemn covenant human beings can make, I think. When God makes a covenant, he makes it with people that he knows will break it again and again and again. You know what guarantees God's covenant? God's word. God will never ever, ever renege on his covenantal word over you. Did you know the new covenant? We are new covenant people. I might renege on it before the night ends tonight. Right? My, my, I mean, who's to say what I'm going to do or decide to do between now and next Sunday? What guarantees my salvation tonight? Where do I find my hope? Where do I find peace? Where do I find confidence that God's covenant word is more powerful than mine? Right? I can make promises to him. I may or may not keep them. I may mean very much that I want to keep them. When God promises, it's already done. It's already settled. It's already perfect. So, God is ensuring here all the way back in the beginning when the world was as bad as it could get at that time. All right, and don't think that the evil now has just got, has God saying, well, for Pete's sakes, what can I do now? Beloved, you know how you know that the current state of evil won't undo God? His covenant. He's made up, he's made promises. God has made promises. God doesn't break his promises. He's continuing on with his original plan. That, that, that's what he does all throughout scripture. Sin and wickedness and corruption and violence cannot derail him. So tonight, neither then can.
can our ongoing struggles with those same things. Whether I am a victim or a perpetrator. He can keep the entire cosmos right where he wants it to be. Can he not handle you and I, oh, us of little faith? Of course he can. Of course he can. For every beloved child of his that sinks, his hand pierces the waves and pulls them right back up. Every time. Every time. The Lord of chaos. The Lord of the storm. He's Lord in corruption and violence that is total. He's Lord. I'll pick one guy. I'll renew my covenant. This will happen. What I want will happen. Your salvation cannot be taken away. God has made his covenant with everyone who believes in his son. God has made a covenant with you. Jesus has ratified it. It cannot be undone. Again, your salvation cannot be taken away. It cannot be removed. It cannot be lost. The covenant-making God is committed to achieving his purpose in creation. Therefore, I am safe in the Son. He is my ark. Right? That's precisely what Jesus is. Rejoice tonight, beloved. Because we can't even snatch ourselves from the covenant-making Father's hands. Rejoice. Rejoice. We're going to close with a song. I'll be down front if any of you need to come and pray for any reason. As we sing, it's page 344. Would you stand? Please, page 344. Let me pray. Father, your name is to be praised and hallowed above every other. Among the millions of reasons why tonight we specify your covenant-keeping word. it's, It's a thought... Um, reiterated when we read in Isaiah 9 as we did this morning that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, will accomplish your plan. Lord, when you make covenants, you move to keep them out of zeal for your name and zeal for your people. And so, Father, we thank you tonight that your promise is secure for each and every one who will believe on you. Father, turn our hearts to you Enable us to keep believing in you and give us grace in every moment. Watch over us now as we think through these things. I ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.